0: Glad to be with you on this beautiful winter morning. Yes. Now it's like 10 more days before winter officially starts, but it feels like it outside, doesn't it? Like it's here in and, and celebration of Christmas. I love the platform, the way things look and the Christmas carols that we just did. I was curious while I was standing there though, can somebody tell me, have, have office Christmas parties and work Christmas parties made a recovery? Are they back again? Yeah, okay, they're back, all right. So here's an idea for you. If you wanna really light up a Christmas party, when you walk in, just when it gets quiet, there's, some, you know, there's always a lull in the conversation. Just throw out this question. So, who do you think Jesus is? Huh. Wonder where that would go at the office Christmas party. What kind of conversation would ensue? How would your friends, your social circle, your family answer that question? Some people would say, he's a phenomenon, absolutely true. Phenomena means a one of a kind. There is no one else like him. We would say he's a marvel, a wonder, all true. Mary and Joseph thought so. Mary and Joseph actually said those very things, and we find that comment being made about them. Look with me on the screen at Luke 2.33. Luke 2.33 says, and his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. I'm going to ask you to contemplate that thought of being amazed for a minute, because I'm going to encourage you to later today go back and read the story if you get a chance to do it. Maybe you haven't read it in a year. Luke chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 2, and go back and read what took place in this particular setting. And you'll find that Joseph and Mary were astounded at the things that they were hearing and the discussions about their son. A particular word that should pop out for you that's in your notes this morning, it's going to be up on the screen, is this word thamazo. And this word, "thamazo," Greek word, is, is the representation of the English word, amazed. They were shocked and astounded at what's being said about their son. He's not even a day old, not even a day old, and the pronouncements that are being made about him, about this child, is like no other. So astounding because so much had already been declared about him. So much had already been promised about him before he was even born. So much was understood about him before he was ever even born. So much was written about him before he was ever even born. I'd like to have known more about my children before they came around. It would have been helpful. But they're normal kids. We're normal parents. You're normal parents. We didn't have the heads up. It wasn't a luxury that we were provided. We we had to learn along the way. But like us, Joseph and Mary were very ordinary. Very ordinary as parents because they were sinners just like the rest of us, but had been given this huge, huge responsibility. So normal like us, but normal in a different sense, related to the first century, they're very young. Mary was maybe 15 years of age. That was a common standard marrying age for a young Jewish girl in the first century. Joseph, possibly on the far end, 17. That was common. The trade had been established. He would have already had training by that point as a carpenter and set out and established his own business. It was not unusual for them to be 17, 15 years of age. We don't actually know much about their background. We, we get the, the list of genealogy that they trace down from, that they're in the line of the King of David, and the names are listed specifically for us in Scripture. Joseph's genealogy in Matthew, Mary's genealogy is in Luke, but you don't really get anything about their education, nothing about their accomplishments. They're, they're too young to have achieved very much. They haven't been around very long. We know that Joseph made his living as a carpenter, which in that era would have been a worker of stone. Yes, a worker with wood, but also someone who shaped stone, because many of the structures, many of the homes had a lot of stonework going into them. It's to these two, it's to those ones that come these angelic visitors to whom God would speak, and they're fresh. From the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God still glowing, so that when humans encounter the angels, they're shocked at the brilliance of their appearance. And for the first time in centuries, God chooses to speak. And when he does, it's about his promise. It's specifically about the promise that he made, a promise that he made all the way back at the time of Adam and Eve. If you've come in this morning wondering why we're not doing the E2E study, well, for one, it's Christmas, right? And and what we're doing this morning is we're putting a bow tie on some of the things that you learned during the E2E study working through the book of Genesis. All the things that you heard over the course of the last year are going to begin to make sense. They're going to fire on all cylinders as you hear these prophecies come together because this promise that God made originated all the way back in the Garden. Now remarkably, when God shows up and speaks, it's not to the high priest. It's not to the scribes, it's not to the Sanhedrin, it's not to the Pharisees, and it's not at the temple, it's not even in Jerusalem. God shows up in the obscurity of a small town in northern Israel to a young couple without any pedigree whatsoever. These are the ones through whom His promise will be accomplished. And because He chose to reveal the fulfillment of this massive promise, we should be ecstatic this morning. I'm going to ask you to take a minute and pray with me before we go into the rest so you see what's coming. I want your heart thoroughly prepared for what God's going to show you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what you've revealed through music and through your word already this morning. We're asking for your anointing right now on all that we're looking at, that everything we've done this morning so far would be remembered by us, and especially as we focus on your word now that we would carry it out the door with us, that you would affect the way that we celebrate Christmas, whether it's at the workplace or it's in our home or just hanging out with friends. God, we ask that you would do this in the majestic name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Here's the big question that people come to when they come to Christmas. How do we know? How do we know that this particular child is actually the one? Well, there's a couple things that you should know as we're going to look at prophecy this morning. I told you that we'd spend some time with that. Here's a couple things about biblical prophecy. Prophecy is always specific as to how it will affect the people that are caught up in the prophecy, how it will affect the people, and how it will affect the situations. And biblical prophecy is always dependable, therefore, it's trustworthy you can have trust in the things that God says. Now, let me give a caveat to that. Because we live in a period of time when division is so rampant, say amen if you agree with that. Because we live in a time when division is so rampant and trust in our culture is at an all-time low, most in culture are not sure they believe what they're being told. God knew that we would face times like this. It doesn't catch Him by surprise. And He knew that there would be times when because of great division, people will need to verify before they will believe the promises. So I want to examine the verification of the promises this morning. Gratefully, we have the prophecies of God that have been written down. Now at its core, prophecies are a promise. It's detailed information. A promise comes from God, and God projects out something that's going to happen. He makes a promise that that thing's going to unfold, and we call it a prophecy. In essence, God's prophecies, God's promises, He promises certain things will unfold, and He delivers that information, those details, through what we call prophecies. So in the ancient days, in the days... Far before humans really inhabited this earth, when there was just a few humans on the earth, God made a magnificent promise, a promise that surpassed all promises, and that promise is the foundation of hope. And if anything is true, what God promises always occurs, and He can afford to be very precise in His promises because He knows the end from the beginning. Well, in the beginning, really truly referencing Genesis, in the beginning God promised to send a rescuer, one who would set everything right, and that one would be the offspring of a woman, a child of promise. The Bible tells us that the world would know for certain when that promised one arrived through specific prophecies. That there would be markers along the way that would validate His arrival and that we would know that the promised one arrived. We get a glimpse of the things that I'm talking about by looking over the shoulder of Dr. Luke as he writes Luke chapter 2. There's something that he penned that's very specific regarding Jesus' first few days on this planet. I want you to picture the setting. Luke chapter 2 captures the idea of Mary and Joseph going into Jerusalem to make a baby dedication, and they're making a surrender of the child that's been given to them to God, and they come into the temple to do that. Now Luke begins his very detailed account, which are consistent with the first century, by starting this place in verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, The name given by the angel before He was conceived in the womb. So we back up before the time of the temple. Jesus is eight days old. He hasn't yet gone to the temple with His parents. They're still in the 40 days of purification, which means they're still in Bethlehem. It's eight days since He's been born in what we understand to be some form of a stall. He's going to be circumcised. Now circumcision was part of the Mediterranean world. In the first century, everyone was circumcised, so he had to be circumcised. It was considered so important in the Jewish world, it would even be performed on Shabbat. Even though God said, you're not going to work on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, they would make an exception. They would do the work of circumcision. All males in the Mediterranean were circumcised, Romans on the ninth day, Greeks on the seventh day. Jews on the eighth day. We find it's at His circumcision that they announce His name. We're told in verse 21 His name would be called Jesus. Uh, You and I have the privilege, if we have children, of naming the children. Parents get to name their children. But this child's name has been revealed by Gabriel. His name would be called Jesus as we understand it in the Greek language. In the Greek language, it's Iesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua that's the way they would have pronounced it. Now Yeshua means deliverer. Yeshua is kind of a derivative of Joshua, Yahshua. Joshua being the deliverer. Put the deliverer together with the word Yeshua 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 and you find that what you have is a combination of the name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh, Deliverer, Jesus means God will deliver, so every time someone would call Jesus or pronounce His name, it's a reminder that God delivers. Every time you say the name Jesus, God delivers. That's the root of His name. So let me give you a little exercise that might help you remember. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. Jesus is His human name. The Greek name, Iesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, Christ is His official title. It's not His last name. And when I worked at Youth Haven, we had a child who asked one time, why did they name Jesus a swear word? Because they'd never heard the name of Jesus in any other form than a swear word. Just think about the background on that. Why name Jesus a swear word? Well, He's not, and and Christ is not His last name. It's His title. Emmanuel. Emmanuel describes what or who He is, God with us, and the angels call Him the Son of God, both the fallen and unfallen angels. The demons call Him the Son of God or, or the Holy One of God. Now with that information, go forward with me into verse 22. Verse 22 says, and when the days for the purification, in other words, the 40 days are past now, when the days for the purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves, and yep, that's where that phrase comes from in the 12 days of Christmas, two turtle doves a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. So they're going up to Jerusalem, but they've been in Bethlehem. Now, geographically, Bethlehem is higher in elevation than Jerusalem. It's actually six miles away, but it sits at a higher elevation. However, when the ancients spoke of Jerusalem, they always spoke of going up to Jerusalem. So they're not going to the local synagogue, they're going to the temple, and the conversation is consistent here in what Luke has written. Because to the ancients, there's no place on earth higher spiritually than Jerusalem, he writes, they're going up to Jerusalem. Now the parents, if they could afford it at this period of time, they would dress in complete white clothing. If they're very poor, they may not have been able to. Maybe they had to launder everything. Maybe they would try and change the color in some way. But they always took upon themselves the responsibility to dress in the whitest clothing they possibly could. Because as they ascend the steps going up to the Temple Mount, they're reciting a psalm. It's called the Psalm of Ascent. And every phrase of the psalm was meant to make their heart gladder and gladder. And I don't think that's good English, but gladder and gladder. They're ascending the steps, and the idea was they're coming before the presence of God, so they've washed themselves, they're thoroughly bathed, they're purified in every way they can. They put on the white clothing and they're ascending before God up the temple steps with this child in their arms. And the talk is not going to the temple, but ascending to the temple, ascending before the presence of God. And they're going to present Him to the Lord according to verse 22. So you're looking at a baby dedication here, and this dedication is to present him to the Lord and then buy him back. Now, New Hope, when we do baby dedications, we don't make the parents pay us to get their children back off the platform, but that's what's going on here. And there's a very specific reason, because he's the firstborn. Let me take you to the Old Testament, and Old Testament Numbers 18 says this. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, verse 16, as to the redemption price from a month old, you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver. So God had a ransom price for the firstborn child. Five shekels in silver is $100 in today's world in pure silver. Now it's not because God needs the money. God doesn't need the money. It was to remind the parents, that one belongs to me. And if you want them back, you're going to pay the redemption price of the firstborn. And we're told also in verse 24 that they're there to offer a sacrifice, in their case, a pair of turtle doves. Now, that's not the offering that you would expect. It's an acceptable offering, but it's not the offering of people who have wealth. It's the offering of the people who are the poorest of the poor, which tells us a great deal about their financial status as a young married couple. If you were of moderate income, you'd be offering a yearly lamb. They were kind of expensive, but that's what you would offer. But if you're poor, you can offer two turtle doves, which would cost a dime apiece at the temple. Now, bigger than all these details, this is what kind of blows me away. The mighty God is entering the temple. I don't know about you, but when I do worship songs and I watch the team up here, I I like to envision what God's doing in that moment, and many times I envision Jesus standing up at the right side of of God and just receiving the praise and the honor and the glory, because we're told all of heaven bows down before Him when people worship Him. Uh, I like to envision Him standing up, and I think of that one in glowing raiments of white. And I contrast it to this one who was born in a manger now being carried into his own temple. What was that like for the rafters and the beams or the birds flying by or the sheep in the courtyard to see the mighty God coming into his temple? I I don't know, but I'd like to imagine that they were in awe as well at that very moment. But we get this detail of what happened next in verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, there's a really complicated political background going on right now in Jerusalem. Herods are in control, and Herod is not just a person, it's a title. So Herod the Great is in control, and he's got sons. They're known as the Herods also. They're in the line of Herod the Great. And politically, they don't want anything to do with another king. They don't even like the discussion of another king. They don't even want the thought of another king. And the priests themselves, they're ignoring the king. The priests know the Scriptures, and they understand Micah 5.2 and the prophecy that the child would be born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem's only six miles away, and they won't even go see him. So politically, among the leaders of the nation, there's a lot of ignorance, there's a lot of individuals who are ignoring that the the Messiah has arrived. What's very significant though is to understand that during this period of time um, among the common people, Messianic expectation is running very, very high because they can do the math. They can go back to the things that Daniel wrote and they can see the timeline. That this is the time frame, this is when that one is supposed to arrive. So they're expecting, God's going to do something. So we're told there's this man in Jerusalem and his name is Simeon, and extra biblical sources peg him at maybe a hundred years of age, maybe a a little older than that, and we're told in verse 25, this man is righteous and he's devout and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, Righteous and devout are two different things. Righteous means he's carrying out all that God expects of individuals who are dedicated him to do. do. But devout means he's doing it with a sincerity of heart, he's doing it out of great purity. So he's righteous and he's devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. So you have an Old Testament saint living in the first century, and he's looking forward to this promised one with really intense desire. And he's completely unlike all the political leaders who are completely ignoring the arrival of the Messiah. This one is looking and he's waiting. For what? For the paraclete. Let me put this phrase on the screen for you. If you're familiar with the Holy Spirit and references in the New Testament, you know that paraclesis, paraclete is referring to the Holy Spirit. Paraclesis is a judicial term borrowed from the legal world. And it meant one who could come alongside you and argue your case for you, known as the comforter. So he's looking for this one, the Periclesis, the one who would come and bring comfort to Israel. A common Jewish prayer at this period of time was this, may I live to see the consolation of Israel. It was a very early way of simply saying, your kingdom come. Your will be done is a very early way of asking God that His purposes would be accomplished. In verse 25, we're told that the Holy Spirit was upon him. So in the same way that the Spirit of God was overshadowing Mary when she conceived the child, we're told that that same one, the Holy Spirit, is on Simeon. The source of the outworking of the eternal promises of God is bringing all this to pass So we get a little note here that Simeon's life reminds us that what you have right now as a follower of Jesus, you have the presence of the Holy Spirit with you all the time, 24-7. The Holy Spirit in these days came and went, came and went. It's upon him at this moment in time, but it's not always upon him. Keep going with me. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Legend speaks of Simeon as being very disturbed by a prophecy. The prophecy that we're told that bothered him most, that was handed down from the early church fathers to our generation even today, that the prophecy that was bothering him was the prophecy of Isaiah 7. It's no surprise. It bothers a lot of people today. It bothered a lot of people at that period of time. The prophecy of Isaiah 7 was that a virgin will conceive, and it never been heard of, nor has it happened since then. How can a virgin have a child? So it's not surprising that that would be disturbing him because it bothered many at that time, and it bothers a lot of people still today. We're told that that one who's troubled at that point in verse 27, he came into the temple, meaning he wasn't already there. He's out in Jerusalem doing whatever Simeon was doing. Whatever was going on in the midst of his day, he's not at the temple, but God interrupts him and makes it clear. So he says to Simeon, stop what you're doing, he's here. And so Simeon heads to the temple. So he came into the temple, and verse 27 says, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. Church, this is an incredibly touching scene. I don't know how many times you've read this already. Maybe you're new to church and you've never read it before. and Perhaps you've read it 500 times. Don't miss the emotion of this moment. Mary and Joseph have just been drawn into God's eternal, perfect timing. They're there, according to verse 27, to carry out for Him the custom of the law, what we just explained the rite of the redemption of the firstborn. And at that exact moment in time is when God reveals to Simeon that he needs to get to the temple and he brings Simeon into the temple court. And in that moment, he sees the child and he scoops him up. And we're left with a question that haunts people today in 2022. How does he know You can imagine, out of the hundreds of thousands of people living in Jerusalem, how many firstborn children there were at that period of time. How does he know that that's the one? How can you know that this is the one, that this one is the fulfillment of the promise? When you understand what I'm about to show you, you will celebrate Christmas much, much more fully. It will have a huge impact on how you celebrate, and you may even be willing to have that office conversation or that workplace conversation. What do you think about Jesus? You can answer that question. Look with me on the screen at verse 28, then he took him into his arms. So what we catch is there's this emotional weight on this man. It's a spiritual weight, and it's resting on him, and this weight is very, very holy. He's a person who sees God's Word, and he knows God's Word, and he believes God's Word, and it affects his actions. Does your knowledge of God's Word affect your actions? That's true of Simeon. What has been revealed to him? Well, let's just back up to what we understand has been revealed already. Mary and Joseph, they knew pieces of the puzzle, but they didn't have the full picture. The house of Zacharias? They've got pieces of the puzzle, the people in Bethlehem, some shepherds out in the fields, their friends, people within their social circle. They've got a few of the details. But Simeon is so convinced that he scoops this child up because deep within his praise, we find that he blessed God, and that has huge significance, that he's not only willing to scoop this child up from this teenage mom but against blessing God for what he's holding. So here's how I reconstruct this in my mind. I see this elderly man entering into the temple and he's looking around and he's scanning the landscape of the courtyard for what? Is he looking for an adult? Is he looking for a teenager? How would he know it would be an infant? How would he know it would be an infant in the arms of a teenager? Well we have to look at the original promise that God made that I mentioned to you all the way back in the book of Genesis. I want you to look with me at Genesis 3:15. In this promise that God made, this prophecy, there's a clue, and this is the most ancient prophecy in the Bible. And it takes place in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3:15 says, "And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel." Now you might remember this if you were here at the time in the E2E study, that the very first prophecy, the very first promise explodes on the scene in the context of the fall. Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. They've just rebelled against God, and yet God makes a promise coming out of that rebellion. So in verse 15 we find, between your offspring and hers, well who's God speaking to? Eve is there. Adam is there. But Lucifer is also there, the tempter. And God's speaking to Lucifer when He says, between your offspring, Lucifer, there will be enmity between your offspring and hers. Now offspring is talking about the seed of the woman. It's referring specifically to Jesus. All the way back in Genesis 3, it's referring to the arrival of the Messiah. So let me show you the word offspring here in the Hebrew language. This this particular word means your posterity, a child coming. Uh, Very carefully you need to dissect it this way. God says that one is going to crush your head, Lucifer. The passage is very, very clear that this promised one that's going to be coming is coming through the genealogy of a woman, not a man. God didn't say between your offspring and his, meaning Adam, but God said between your offspring and hers, meaning Eve, and immediately this would catch the attention of anybody who's a student of the Bible, not just because it's been announced by God Himself, but because it runs runs contrary to all of biblical norm. Genealogies are always tracked through the line of a man, always tracked through men. Legal descent, national identity, tribal identity, Uh, it's always through the line of the male. That this one, this one who's coming in the future will be traced through the line of a woman, it tells us something extraordinary will be different about this promised one. Catch the reality with what you know about the story of Christmas. Something, something circumstance will cause his ancestry to be through his mother, not through his father. And here's the hard part if you're living at that period of time. There's no explanation given. There's no understanding of what it meant. For this extraordinary situation to unfold, they would have to wait literally thousands of years to understand the next key to the puzzle. No clue will be given as to what that meant for centuries. So during the time of Abraham, during the time of Isaac, during the time of Jacob, all they could do is look forward to a time that they could not see. All they could do is live with the promise that there's one coming who's going to crush the head of Lucifer. But we don't know how and we don't know when, all they could do is look forward. The ancients could only look forward in hope, believing that one day sin will be dealt with somehow. And then along comes Isaiah. And Isaiah says this one will not only be born through a woman, but will be born of a virgin, meaning no human father. Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, the word that's used here means very young in the Hebrew language, still a virgin, had no knowledge of a man physically, and that's something that doesn't happen, we would say, every day, Well, we would say ever, ever. How could that possibly happen? Well, Scripture emphasized what happened here, Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of women. God's covenant promise, His promise to destroy the destroyer, would be through a virgin, a born child, born through a virgin, and Satan will be crushed as a result. And so that you and I would understand this, all of the Old Testament keeps pointing back to this promise, the arrival of the one who will actually accomplish this monumental task. And we find that the God of the Bible can afford to be very precise about these details because he knows the end from the beginning. Let me give you some of the precision that will help you in your understanding of how you know for sure this is the one. First of all, we're told that the one, specifically who will be born, will be born in Bethlehem. And I want you to understand this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Look with me at Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So Micah lives in 700 B.C. And out of all of the thousands of cities, out of all the nations on planet Earth, he points to Bethlehem 700 years before Jesus is ever born and he identifies the birthplace of the Messiah. And it is not by accident that God moves in the heart of Caesar Augustus to conduct a census of all the known world that they would be taxed so that we find Joseph showing up of all places in Bethlehem. Luke 2 verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Coincidence? I think not. Next one, the one that's going to come is going to come from the line of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and that's another reference to Jesus, to the Messiah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. If you read Luke chapter 3, verse 33 later today, you can trace the genealogy all the way back to Judah, from Jesus to Judah. So we understand the New Testament emphasizing this. It says in Hebrews 7.14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Why is that significant? Because Jacob on his deathbed, he shows up in Egypt after Joseph makes his way to Egypt, and his 11 brothers show up, and they begin living in Egypt, dwelling in Egypt, and Jacob dies in Egypt. And on his deathbed, 1800 years, before Jesus is born. Jacob says, that one who's coming, Shiloh, the Messiah, he's going to come through the line of Judah. The scepter will not depart from between his feet. The obedience of the peoples will be to that one. 1,800 years. Coincidence? I don't think so. The arrival of the one also tragically would lead to a massacre of children at Messiah's birthplace. Scripture doesn't just say that children will be killed as a result of Jesus coming. It also says it will be a massacre and it will happen right in the city where Jesus was born. Why? Because Satan can read Scripture also. Jeremiah 31 verse 15, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. Rachel, by the way, if you didn't know, was from Bethlehem. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah lived 600 years before Jesus is born. And because Satan can read Scripture also, we have Matthew 2.16. Matthew 2.16 says... When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. I've given you just three so far. What about in 1012 B.C.? In 1012 B.C., it specifies specifically how the Messiah will die, that he'll die by crucifixion. It specifies that. 800 years before Rome is even a nation, before Rome even brings crucifixion into existence. Or what about in 425 B.C. when Malachi wrote and specified that the Messiah would be a contemporary of the temple in Jerusalem. But that temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., therefore, when that child arrived, it had to arrive in a very specific short window of time because that temple would never be rebuilt. Or this last one, in 500 B.C., Zechariah said that the Messiah, the Messiah would be sold as a slave for 30 pieces of silver. Well, at the time of Zechariah, slaves were being sold for 20 pieces of silver. Was Zechariah just projecting ahead and thinking of inflation? I don't think so. It's not just a coincidence. New Hope, what are the odds of those things being accurate, what are the odds of those things being accurate and written hundreds of thousands of years earlier than even when the geopolitical empires were put in place? Rome didn't exist. What are the odds that those things could be so accurate that any one man in all of human history could fulfill even just eight? of the 60 major prophecies. The Old Testament has 60 prophecies like that. And every one of them fulfilled to the nth degree. What are the chances that one person could fulfill even just eight of those? The probability that Jesus could fulfill even just eight of the 60 prophecies is one in ten. You know there's more, right? To the 17th power. Do you you know what quadrillion looks like? We're gonna put an image on the screen for you so that you can see what that looks like. 100 quadrillion, not just quadrillion. I know there's billionaires. I know there's some that are close to becoming trillionaires. Nobody is a quadrillionaire and that's 100 quadrillion. That's the odds of one person in all of history fulfilling just eight of the 60 major prophecies. Now, if you have a trouble with seeing all those zeros and picturing that, try and picture this. What if 100 quadrillion could be represented by silver dollars? If you had 100 quadrillion silver dollars, believe me, there's people who do mathematics on these things. They love it. And they've done the calculations. It's been verified. So let's picture it this way. If you had 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you could cover the entire surface of the state of Texas two feet deep. So let's picture Texas right now. All the dry gulches, all the riverbeds, all the hills, Dallas, Houston, Austin, Amarillo, Waco from north to south, east to west, cover the entire surface of the state in 100 quadrillion silver dollars. Now, because you have 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you can afford to pull one out and paint one red. Put that one red one any place you want in the state of Texas, and identify a friend of yours and tell him to leave Dallas on foot and begin walking. And they can walk any place they want, but they get one chance, and only one chance, one chance to reach into that pile of silver dollars and pull out that one red coin. That's one in ten to the seventeenth power. God can afford to be very precise because He knows the end from the beginning, He knows your ending just as he knew your beginning, and every intimate detail in between, including every success you've had, and every failure, and every sin. And yet he sent the promised one anyway. He sent Jesus because his promise cannot be broken. And he wanted to rescue the world. So because His mercy is greater than all our sin, somebody better say amen to that, because His mercy is greater than all our sin, our God can't afford to be very, very precise about the things that He promises. So let's finish this out now because we're going to carry it over into next week. And let me take you to where this goes next. We're told from verse 28 that he took him into his arms to picture Simeon. He scooped up the child. He's still holding the child. That's verse 28. And now comes verse 29 and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That's a really beautiful hymn that's been preserved down through time. What's understood through tradition is this. Mary heard what he just said, and she locked it away in her mind, and she passed it on to Dr. Luke. Somehow, Dr. Luke had to know he wasn't there in the temple at the time, so Mary must have memorized what Simeon had just said, and she passed it on to Luke. And what you've just heard is what's referred to in Latin as the nuke dimittis. It's been a treasure of the church for centuries, millennia. It hasn't been used so much in recent years. You might find it in some Latin masses still today. But it's emphasizing this word, now. That's the word nunc that's used in the very beginning. Now, finally. Now, God, for my eyes have seen your salvation according to your word. why is that phrase so important? Because it's referring back to verse 26. We're told back in verse 26, it had been revealed to him through the Holy Spirit. Well, how does God's Spirit speak to us? Through his word. God speaks through his word. God's Spirit moves holy men of old to write the things of God. It had been revealed to him, verse 26, and we're told here now, according to your word, I understand these things. So Simeon is a person who knows God's word and understands God's word, and it's affected his actions, and this one has profound insight into his own generation, and yet within these pregnant sentences, he speaks to your future. He speaks to your day. Understand what you're seeing here, this new This is a missionary hymn, it's a missionary song, it's really unusual for this setting. You have a Jew, a Jew of Jews standing in the Jewish temple, and their city is inhabited by the Romans. The Roman guards have taken over their city, so they don't like the Gentiles too much, but he's talking about the Gentiles inside the Jewish temple. And that's why this is called a missionary hymn. So he says in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation, you have prepared it, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. To even say the word Gentiles in the Jewish temple would cause people to go, I can't believe you said that. It would cause shock for individuals to hear about the Gentiles being saved. So Simeon sees this promise going out to the entire world, that all the world can be saved. That's why you find the angel speaking to the shepherds on the hillside. This will be a sign unto you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swatting clothes and laying in a manger. And he's come for all the people, not just for the Jewish people. Simeon says he's come because the lost are shrouded in darkness. Isaiah clarifies for us what this darkness is like, that that people whom you know, people in your life right now, who are not yet believers in Jesus, they're enveloped in a thick mist according to Scripture. Look with me on the screen, Isaiah 25. He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. So It's speaking of this one when he comes that the gloom of the covering of sin, it'll be taken away. And that's why you find Paul writing what he does when he writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When you turn to Jesus, the veil was taken off you. The blinders fell from your eyes. That's what you pray for, for your loved ones, for your friends and for your family, that the veil would be taken away, that they would be able to see the things of God. So what you're seeing in the story is this old man, he knows much about God's plans, and that's why verse 28 says, then he took him into his arms, because he's someone who sees God's word, and he believes God's word, and he acts on God's word, and he understands that Yeshua is not just for the salvation of Israel, but for the entire planet, for all of humanity. So that's why it's followed up with Luke 2 saying in verse 33, and his father and his mother, they were through about the things that were being said about him. So they're marveling again and again and again. They're wondering. Now, Mary's already got information from the angels. Joseph has information from the angels. They've gathered together information from the shepherd's message that was relayed to them. But in this moment, Mary and Joseph with this 40-day-old baby are shocked at this pronouncement because this is the first time. This is the first time that they've been together and they've heard all the pieces assembled of the destiny of Jesus. It is impossible for us to understand the astonishment of this moment. What child's life in all of human history Contained all these details, all of these characteristics, all of these accomplishments, and had all this effect on the entire world system. And they were all laid out before the child was ever even born. What child? None ever, except for Jesus. Next week, you're going to see Simeon stop praising, and he's going to start prophesying. Let me show you this, verse 34, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's what we're going to pick it up at next week. I told you earlier that prophecy reveals purpose. It it affects everyone who's caught up in the prophecy. Prophecy reveals purpose. This child is barely a month old and we're already told he's going to be the dividing line. He's gonna be the one whose name is dropped at Christmas parties. And people are gonna say, what do you think about Jesus? And it's gonna cause people to be shocked because He's the dividing line. It's implicit within what you've seen so far this morning that you understand God's timing is always perfect, always. And God's promises will be fulfilled And that includes all the promises that He made to you, that He has forgiven you of your sins, that He has extended grace and mercy to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to join Him in heaven one day. God's promises are as good to you as they were to Mary and Joseph. Fortunately, because God is a precise, promise-keeping God, and He knows that we live in a generation that needs great evidence, He went out of His way, way out of His way, to provide exactly the evidence that you need. And you've just seen a tip of the iceberg this morning. The promises that God made and the promises that He has kept, I stand on this truth. Those are promises worth sharing. And they're worth sharing with people who are precious to you. So here's how I'm going to send you out the door this morning. I'm going to encourage you to invite somebody to come back with you next week that they would experience hearing the truth of these promises and how they can know for sure that He's the one. Let's pray together, New Hope. Father, I thank You for the way that You encourage our hearts, and You encourage our hearts through understanding that prophecy is fulfilled. And that means everything that You did in the past that You promised that happened, we can take that as serious guarantee that everything You prophesied about the future is going to happen as well. And that includes us joining You in heaven one day. Thank you for our loved ones who have passed on, that died with that promise and that understanding. And with a relationship with you, we know that we're going to see them again one day. And we take on this week understanding that the same promise applies to us. Father, I pray that you would send us out with a a skip in our step, with an ecstatic nature, that we're joyful. That this one came, and our world has changed because of it. We praise you. In the majestic name of the one who came for us and is coming again, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.